Welcome to another episode of the Innovation Insights Podcast, where we explore innovation in all aspects of life. I'm your host, Dr. Yolanda Sanders. Today, we are honored to have Dr. Tamika Ellington, a remarkable figure whose journey of triumph over adversity is nothing short of inspirational. Dr. Ellington's story begins in the inner city of Cleveland, Ohio. Her impressive credentials include a Bachelor's of Art in Fashion from Kent State University, a Master's of Art in Apparel and Textile Design from Michigan State University, and a PhD in Curriculum and Instruction from Kent State University. Her professional journey has been equally remarkable, starting as a fashion designer for major corporations and then transitioning into academia. At Kent State University, she made history as the first Black professor in the fashion school. And then her role also included assistant dean for the College of Arts and director for diversity initiatives. An internationally acclaimed fashion designer, a fashion scholar, speaker, and confidence coach, Dr. Ellington is the CEO and founder of Dr. Tamika Ellington Enterprises. She is a published author with her books like Textures, The History and Art of Black Hair, are making significant contributions to Black beauty and culture discourse. Her latest book, Black Hair in a White World, continues this critical conversation. Dr. Ellington's dedication to empowering others especially breaking down cultural barriers and fostering self-confidence is truly transformative. Her story is a testament to the power of self-empowerment in supporting innovation. So join us as we dive into an engaging conversation with the inspiring Dr. Tamika Ellington. Welcome to Innovations Insights. Thank Dr. you so Ellington. much. Thank you so much. I'm honored to do this interview with you. I'm excited about it. Thank you for the invitation. Well, I'm a fan of yours. I have been for a long time and I've had the opportunity to work with you and watch your success professionally in many areas. And so I'm so proud to have you here and for you to share with us your wisdom because there is so much that you have. Thank you. It's for me to be interviewed by you and for you to say all these wonderful things about me just lets me know that I'm doing something right. You starting off as a mentor to me in the industry was a big part, played a big part in my success. So I thank you. Oh, that's, that's very, very kind of you. Wow, that's very kind of you. We're lucky to have you. We are thank lucky you. to have you in this world. So let's start with your journey. Okay. Could you talk about growing up in Cleveland and then working in industry and then becoming a fashion scholar? And then now you work with your own business. Yeah, yeah. The journey has been just that. Uh, I grew up in the inner city of Cleveland uh, to a single mom who had me when she was 16. She had my brother when she was 17 and then had my sister when she was 21. And unfortunately, my dad was not with us. He was addicted to alcoholism. He was an alcoholic, dealt with alcoholism, which eventually turned into drugs and then which eventually led him into a prison sentence. So my dad was in prison for about 15 years. 
one of the things that was critically important to me as a young person was to not repeat what I saw. That was one of the things that I really strive to do. And I think that has been the catalyst of pretty much everything that I've done is to not repeat what I saw growing up and that I could do something different than what I saw growing up. And so I became the first person in my family to go and actually graduate from high school. So I'm a first-generation high school graduate as well as a first-generation college graduate. And when I went on to the, into the fashion industry, became one of the first people in my family to work in a corporate environment. My family is very blue-collar family. And it's been an absolute journey. And one of the things that I will say is that I had to learn how to be flexible in my journey. I thought I was going to be a fashion designer for the rest of my life. That's what I thought. God had other plans for me. He kept whispering things in my ear. And I just, I, I had to just go and follow what it was. And when I was working at Abercrombie, I was a technical designer at Abercrombie. And when I was working there, I loved what I was doing. I loved working for Abercrombie. It was such an amazing experience being there. But I kept feeling like I was missing something. And that little piece of me missing something is what ended me up like going to school, back to school for my PhD and uh, starting my teaching journey, becoming an educator. And then once I became an educator, that was my sweet spot. I got a chance to do fashion as well as to fulfill my soul at the same time. And my students ended up letting me know that I was doing more than just teaching them. They began to send me these beautiful cards. Like at the end of the semester, I would get these beautiful notes. The students would say things like, Dr. Ellington, you really helped me increase my level of self-esteem, or I saw how hard you work and you made me want to work harder. I saw, like they would just say all these beautiful things. Like you just, the kids would say, you inspire me so much. And when I realized that I'm like, wow, I'm not only teaching, but I'm empowering these students. And that feeling of being able to have the ability to empower others overtook me. It overtook me. And my students, I actually talked to them before I left the university. Um, I was in class, my very last class, because I was about to switch over into the dean's office. And my last class, I told my students, I said, I'm thinking about becoming a full-time speaker. I'm a little bit apprehensive about it, but I think that might be where I'm going next. And my students, they were like, oh, you would be so good at that, Dr. Ellenson. I can definitely see you doing that. And my response back to them was, if I go and become a speaker, then I won't be able to be in class with you all anymore. And one of my students stood up and she said, if you leave, You'll have a global classroom. Oh, that's lovely. So they gave me permission to leave. Mm, that's wonderful. And I started on the journey of uh, becoming a motivational speaker, empowerment coach. I work a lot with women, helping them increase their level of confidence and things like that and le building leadership skills and things. And so I just, I love it. I absolutely love it. I do miss my students. I miss being in class with my students for sure. But I'm on a new journey now. You are. So. 
I follow you on social media and I see that you're with, you're engaging with so many different people. So your students, your student was correct. You have a a global classroom. So how was that transition? Because you don't hear leaving academia and going on their own and uh, very entrepreneurial and innovative to do that. Yeah. Um, The transition was a courageous feat. When I left the university, I didn't really tell a whole lot of people that I was leaving and what I was going to be doing. I told just a handful of people, and it was mostly people that I felt like I could trust. And even some of those individuals, like one of my colleagues, who was a good friend of mine, I had mentioned to her a while back that I wanted to start a business. And then once I became dean, she said to me, Oh, now that you're assistant dean, you don't have to start that little business that you were talking about. And I said, okay, I see that I won't be able to talk to you about this anymore. And so I did not want to hear other people's opinions about what I was going to do. And so I stopped telling people what I was doing. Only the people that needed to know were the ones that knew. And so when I made the transition, it was really hard because... By this time, I'm doing well, making six figures and a stable job. Most people, that's the job that they aim for. I was in a, I was in a job that people aim to get. And for me to walk away from that took a lot of courage. And then not only did I have to end up walking away from my career in academia, but I also ended up having to walk away from my marriage too. My, my ex-husband wasn't thrilled about me leaving the university and starting my own business and doing all these things. And so I had to make a choice. Was I going to do what I knew God was asking me to do or was I going to do what my ex-husband wanted me to do? And so I chose God. Very courageous and uh, taking really big courageous steps. So you've talked quite a bit about education and empowerment. What's your thoughts about mentorship and how are you providing mentorship now to uh, this global classroom that you have? I'm a huge advocate for mentorship. All of the success that I've had, even from being a young girl, I could attribute my success to people that mentored me throughout my years. I had a Sunday school teacher, Miss Carol who she was an amazing person, an amazing mentor. I had a very difficult high school experience. By this time, my dad was in prison and we were going through a lot of things at home. And Miss Carol was such an amazing part, such an amazing part of my life. And then when I got to college, I met professors that were amazing that helped me along my journey. When I became a professional, I established an executive board of mentors. You were included in that. And I had mentors to help me with lots of different parts of my life. I mentored several students, and I still do. I have a scholarship that I left with the university. It was really important for me, especially as the first Black professor in the school to leave some form of a legacy. 
happens. I started the Ellington Foundation and I give scholarships to students every year. It's, I've been doing that now for the past three years. And I stay in touch with my students and I'm accessible to them whenever they need to talk or whatever the case might be. I want to make sure that I'm accessible. That's wonderful. I know some other individuals that sponsor some scholarships too that give the money, but also give the time Mm -hmm. and the access to their support and knowledge. And it's just a double win for the, the student that receives the scholarship. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and it's my, it's my pleasure um, and my honor to be able to do it because people did it for me. I'm sorry. I don't know where these tears are coming from. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. That's okay. Maybe I feel comfortable enough with you to cry. I think that's that's what it is. We've been through some journeys. Yes, we have. Yes, we absolutely have. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, reflecting and preparing for this, I was thinking back to some of our past conversations. And sometimes I was in Colorado working in my yard, talking with you. (laughs) Yeah, it's really good, good memories. Mm -hmm. Oh, now one big area that you work in is beauty and challenging. Western beauty standard. Absolutely. Uh, especially in the context of black beauty and hair. Yeah. Uh, uh, share with us how that became important to you uh, as a topic of focus. Um, it's been important that the topic of black beauty has been important to me ever since I was a child because uh, I grew up with dark brown skin with kinky hair um and i would notice in school the little girls that would get the boyfriends and the ones that wouldn't get the boyfriend i would notice the treatment how they were treated versus how i was treated as i grew into a young adult i ended up um, going to work for an amusement park and while we were in orientation they were telling us all about our uniform, what we had to wear. And then they started telling us, well, we couldn't come to work wearing. So back then you couldn't have a lot of tattoos. You couldn't have a lot of piercings. You couldn't have crazy colors in your hair. And then they started talking about, we couldn't wear afros. They started talking about, we couldn't wear braid. We couldn't wear locks. And that puzzled me so much because I'm like, okay, these are hairstyles that black people wear on a normal basis. Like, why can't we come to work with these kinds of hairstyles? And at the time, I was in the process of transitioning from being a woman who straightened her hair to being a woman who had natural hair. So I've been natural ever since 98. Um, And I was at the time when I was working for this amusement park, I was wearing my hair like in a little afro. And so I'm like, okay, so are they telling me that I can't come to work looking like this? And needless to say, I didn't stay there for longer than four weeks or so. And then I was back at home. But just trying to better understand myself as a Black woman, trying to understand why society has such a disdain with Black beauty, why we as Black people have such a disdain with Black beauty, 
I wanted to understand all of that. And so that's what got me started on the journey. When I was a student at Michigan State, I worked under a wonderful lady, Sally Halvinston. And uh, Dr. Halvinston was very um, open with me in regards to selecting my thesis topic. And I told her, I said, the only thing I really want to study is black hair. I said, that's the only thing that's really important to me. And she said, okay, what are you going to do? And so I started like laying out this research study and it started coming to me. And Dr. Halvinstein was like, okay, let's do it. You know, she got me started with, you know, doing this type of research. And it just continued on for the rest of my career. Um, I still had so many questions that I wanted to find out. Um, one of the things that I wanted to concentrate on is confidence and self-esteem in Black women, because I noticed um, throughout my studies that women who wore their hair natural had to have a different level of self-esteem than those who did not, because of the fact that kinky, curly, natural hair is not accepted still in many parts of our society. And those women who were willing to go against the grain, they had to have a different level of self-esteem or, or higher levels of self-esteem. And so that just fascinated me. And I just wanted to know more and more. And it led me to publishing several journal articles. It led me to doing book chapters. It led me to then putting together my own anthology. And that's what Black Hair in a White World is. And also the, the exhibition. So I curated an entire exhibition about Black Hair. Uh, Textures, the History and Art of Black Hair, which was amazing. That was an amazing experience. We got so much amazing press from that show and published a beautiful book in, in, in addition to that. And so it's been my journey. And so even now as an entrepreneur, I have branded myself as the Black Beauty Activist. And my podcast is the Black Beauty Activists podcast. And I talk about lots of different types of topics that are in relation to Black women, things that we go through, beauty, of course, but other things like building a business and what does it take to be an entrepreneur or being a professional? What does that take? And how we need to be able to have certain types, levels of confidence in order to be able to do the things that we want as Black women. I still haven't buried off of the path. It's just now it's different. It's just a little bit different, but the path is still the path. Yes. Thank you for taking that path and adding to the knowledge, not just for scholars, but for, again, this global classroom that you're teaching because there are so many misconceptions, misunderstandings about Black hair. And the experience of Black women. If thinking about your experience as a Black woman and a Black a woman professor at Kent State, how, how was that being the first uh, professor? And how did that impact your teaching and your leadership? I think, I honestly believe that if I didn't have that experience, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now as a motivational speaker, as a women's empowerment coach, I wouldn't be doing these things. The first two years while I was on the tenure track, and even let me just say before then, after I finished my coursework for my PhD, I started off working as a part-time 
professor at Kent first while I was getting my PhD. And so while I had finished up all my coursework, there was a full-time non-tenure track position that became available. And I applied for it and got turned down. And then there, several months later, became another non-tenure track opening. I applied for it and got turned down a second time. Third time came around. Several months later, there was another non-tenure track position available, and I applied for it and got turned down for a third time. And because I was working there part-time, I saw all of the people that they had hired instead of me. At one point, I had gotten passed up for someone who only had a bachelor's degree, and I was ABD, all but dissertation. After the third time of being denied for a position, I had gone to one of my mentors and told her what was going on. And she took me right over to the Affirmative Action Department and helped me file the complaint. And so after the complaint was filed, I magically got a job. To the dismay of my colleagues. So I started working there as a full-time non-tenure track professor. And then after I finished my PhD, I went to the director at the time. We both know who he is. Went to the director and I said to him, the fashion school has never had a black professor. I think it's time. And he said, I couldn't agree with you more. And so that's how I became the first black professor. Thank you for your perseverance. As a professor, you had an incredible career, not just only teaching, but also with your scholarly impact. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like I said, I really don't think I would be doing what I'm doing now if I didn't have that journey. Because like I said, the first two years while I was on the tenure track, once I became a tenure track professor, I was so afraid. I, I, I would go into, to, to work and just be stagnant. Like the first couple of years, like those first two years, I didn't really produce any scholarly work because I was too afraid that they were watching me. They were waiting for me to mess up. They were try they were waiting to be able to have the opportunity to say, see, I told you she didn't belong here. But so that kept me stagnant for the first two years. And luckily, I had mentors in my life that helped to pull me out of that. A lot of prayer and a lot of meditation. And eventually, I got to a point where I remember one day I came into work and I used to get so stressed out about walking into the building. Yolanda, I remember one time I was so stressed out. I caught shingles because I was so stressed out. Mm -hmm. My hair started falling out because I was so stressed out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was sitting at my desk one day in the office and I just heard God speak to me. And he said, why do you care so much about what these people think about you? I put you here for a reason. You're supposed to be the first black professor here. He said, I need you to show up. I gave you talents. I need you to show up. And that lit a fire under me. And 
a fire that was inextinguishable. Yes. You did show up in, yes, in I a did. big way. Yes. What many people don't realize is that being the first, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of stress. Mm -hmm. And it can be taxing on your confidence. And, and, yeah. and that's an area that you're working in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So for many Black women, they are the first within their workplace, within a position. They're dealing with micro, which I feel are really macro. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I, so what are some ways that you coach Black women to deal with that stress and the pushback, the slight, because it does impact your physical, not only your mental, but also your physical health. Absolutely. Uh, I am a true advocate for this idea called a power of deserving. I had to get in my mind that I deserve to be in that space, regardless of what anybody else had to say. I deserved it because I worked damn hard to get there. I want any woman who was in a space where they are the first to sure. understand that they deserve to be there. Wherever they are, they deserve to be there. Another thing that I am such an advocate for is authenticity. You must show up authentic. You must, because if you don't and you show up with the mask on, they're not going to get the full version of you. They're not going to get all of the excellence that you have to offer. They're not going to get it. That first two years while I was on the tenure track, I was wearing a mask because I was too scared to be my authentic self. So first, know you deserve to be there. And then second, be authentically you and do it excellent. And so as you're talking about authentic you, would you share a little bit more what that means? Yeah. My first step into being an authentic me in regards to being a researcher or a scholar actually came with a conversation that I had with someone who you know, who I believe has mentored both of us. Okay. So she was one of the first Black scholars in our field. And when I talked to her about what I wanted to do as my research topics in line of inquiry, I told her that I wanted to study about black hair. And she said to me, she said, I really don't want you to study that because I want you to get tenure. If you do research about black beauty and hair, they are not going to give you tenure. Do the research they want you to do so that you can get tenure. Once you get tenure, then start your journey with black dress, black hair, black beauty. Knowing me and knowing that I only work in happiness and the only thing that was going to make me happy was to study black beauty. And so I didn't follow her advice. I had to show up authentically me. I couldn't do the research that they wanted me to do because I knew I wouldn't have been happy with it. And so I figured out a way to, to do my research. But I think what really helped me in doing it is that I got to the point where I was so excellent 
at everything that I did, that even if they didn't agree with the topics that I was researching, they had no choice but to recognize my excellence. So I came up and I showed up so excellent that all they could say was congratulations, Dr. Tamika. That's all they could say. And so do you feel that the bar is much higher and the expectations are higher for a Black woman in positions? I say for sure. Let me just put it like this. When I first started this journey into uh, academia, I had a colleague of mine who had a master's of fine arts. And in our field, you don't have to have a PhD in order to become a professor. You have to have a master's of fine arts. And I was talking to her about the possibility of starting my PhD. And so this was like very early in my career. She was a white woman. And she said, well, you really don't have to get a PhD. You can just go and get your master's of fine arts. And I said to her, yeah, that sounds good for you. But I said, I know that's not going to be good for me. And she was like, what do you mean? I said, as a black woman, I can't get a master's of fine arts. I have to get a PhD. And so for quite a while, I was the only professor that had a PhD that was a fashion design professor. Any other PhD that we had, they were retail marketing, fashion people. So I was the only one for quite a while in my department who had a PhD who was teaching design. Everybody else had a MFA. And yet and still, they said that I wasn't talented enough to be there, that I didn't deserve to be there. Even though I had a PhD and they had an MFA. Hmm. So I knew that I couldn't, I had to have the best. I had to have the top because if I didn't, there's no way I would have ever been able to be recognized. Right. So true. So true. Mm -hmm. That's a great example. Absolutely. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. So in your role of founder of Dr. Tamika Ellington Enterprises, what are the core principles that guide your work in personal and professional development? Be beautiful. Be authentic. Be confident. Those are the three things. If you open up my website, that's going to be the first three things that you see. Be beautiful. Be, con be confident. Be authentic. That's great. That's great. That's great. Innovation, innovation is something that I have always felt like you are quite innovative throughout your whole career. How does innovation and inclusive environments and diversity and belonging and equity all commingle together? Well, I, diversity, belonging, I honestly don't think that you can separate the two. You can't separate diversity, equity from innovation. And the reason why I say that is because people that are from diverse backgrounds bring so much creativity and such a different perspective than other people that you can't help but to get something new by having someone 
of a diverse background in your company, in your school or whatever, because our lived experience is very different than other people's lived experiences. So we're always going to bring something different, always going to bring something innovative because that's just who we are. I like that a lot. Uh, so as you're thinking about future projects, you are a mover and a shaker. And so what's on the horizon for you? So I just completed and will be rolling out very soon a program called Girl, Be the Goat. So I wrote a book called Be the Goat, and it's a career readiness manual for young people, for high schoolers and college students. And the reason why I wrote that book is because, as I mentioned, I was the first person in my family to go to college, first person to work in a corporate environment. And so when I was in the process of interviewing and getting prepared for my career, there were so many things I did not know. And so in that book, I put all the things that I wish I would have known when I was their age. And so I decided that I wanted to take that book and turn it into a more fleshed out program specifically for girls where I can spend four sessions with them, empowerment sessions, where we talk about self-discovery. We talk about confidence and empowerment. We talk about career development, all of these things that young girls need. And so along with that, they'll also get a copy of my book. I also have a package where they can get a 10 module course that I have online module course. So I'm going to be rolling that out real soon, and that'll be available for high schools across the nation. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Little excellent. And that can, and that be, can accessed be accessed on your website. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have a website specifically called Girl Be the Goat. Oh, okay. Excellent. Yeah. Girl okay. Be the Goat. Yeah. We'll make sure that we follow that. As you're you know, thinking about your future projects and empowerment, how do you continue to Put at the front, breaking down cultural barriers within your work. The good thing about being an entrepreneur is that you get to work with whoever you want to work with. That's part of the reason why I became an entrepreneur, because I didn't want to have to deal with anybody's microaggression. I didn't want to have to deal with discrimination in any kind of way. If somebody sees me ask who I am and they want to hire me to come and speak or they want to purchase my books or maybe my program, my coaching programs or whatever the case might be, they know that they're getting me. Yeah. They're getting me. And so if they chose me for a reason. And so since I've started this entrepreneurial journey, I haven't had to deal with any microaggression. I get up every day and I don't have the same type of stress that I have. I'm telling you, like, the day I left the university, there was this weight that just fell off me. And there's nothing like it. It's difficult being a new entrepreneur. Uh, my learning curve was really big because as an academic, that's a very different type of lifestyle. And so I had a lot to learn and I'm still learning a lot, but I wouldn't trade anything because I get to wake up every day in joy doing what I know I love to do and what God asked me to do. Black female entrepreneurs are the largest group of entrepreneurs in the United States that are, are yeah. growing. And 
There's quite a bit of literature currently to that. It's very difficult for Black women to work. I and progress within typical work. So being able to work at a distance and protect themselves. Something that I think we're going to continue to see more. I'm so proud of you. Oh, so you have received numerous awards and recognitions. Uh, You've talked a little bit about your legacy, but what do you hope your legacy will be in fashion, education, and empowerment? I took a lesson from Maya Angelou and Oprah Winfrey's conversation that they had in regards to legacy. Because typically when we think about legacy, we think about one thing or two things that we do um, that will be remembered, right? Like my scholarship is one thing that I've created to help build a legacy. I'm in the process of getting that scholarship endowed so that it will be available for students all the time. And that scholarship is for Black fashion students. But what I learned from listening to a conversation between Oprah and my Angela told Oprah that there's no way we will ever know what our legacy is because our legacy includes every single life that we've touched. And what I've come to understand is that we don't even know half of the impact that we've had on people because sometimes people just won't tell us. They'll just watch us. I've had so many people come up and tell me, oh, I know you from social media. I'm like, I've never even seen this person before in my life. But people are watching. And the legacy really is bigger than what I could ever even think that it might be. And so my goal is just to show up as the most authentic version of whatever God's highest calling is for me. Just to show up in the best way I can. That makes sense. That makes sense. Oh, our last last question that I ask each guest is, how do you define innovation? I define innovation as it's a space. And what I mean by that is it's a space in our society that allows us to move freely, to move in a way that shows up in in our best selves and the most creativity that we can have. If you're restricted in what you can do, that's going to also restrict the level of innovation you can have. So if you can be free to just be you and be the best you, the creativity will just come, it'll just come out. There, there won't be anything that'll be holding it back. And so to me, that's what innovation is, freedom. I love it. I love it. I love it. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. So thank you for joining us today, Dr. Ellington. Thank you. It was a pleasure. It's truly been our pleasure to explore the depth of self-empowerment, cultural transformation, and your incredible journey in overcoming adversity and champion diversity in fashion and in education and in women's lives. To our listeners, I hope this conversation has enlightened 
and inspired you to embrace your journeys of self-discovery and innovation. May Dr. Ellington's story motivate you to break through barriers and use your unique experiences to drive positive change in your communities and beyond. So remember, innovation is more than just creating something new. It's about personal growth, societal norms, and using our distinct voices and experiences to inspire and empower others. I am Dr. Yolanda Sanders, and I'm signing off until our next episode. Keep innovating, keep dreaming, and keep making a difference.